Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Burg. Tonight, a huge moment last week for the people of Nunavut as the territory signed a final agreement with the government of Canada giving control over land and resources to the government of Nunavut just about 25 years after it was created, a process known as devolution. Premier PJ Akiogok joins me to talk about its importance to Nunavut and to him. You've probably heard of quiet quitting, loud leaving, rage applying. Well, there's a new one for a new year. What is loud budgeting? Personal finance expert Leslie Ann Scourge is with me to explain. He is one of the Canadians up for an Oscar on March the 10th. Halifax-born Ben Proudfoot is nominated for Best Documentary Short Feature for a movie he co-directed called The Last Repair Shop, which profiles a small group who repair instruments for students in Los Angeles' public school system, one of the last programs of its kind in America. It's a great film. It's also a third Oscar nod for Ben, who won in 2022 for his short feature called The Queen of Basketball. He shares some of his stories, his inspirations, and lets us know how much an Oscar really weighs, more than you think, apparently. But first, eight years after BC declared a public health emergency over the opioid crisis and the spike in overdose deaths. New figures released today show the highest number of OD deaths ever in the province last year. More than 2,500 in 2023. And of course, BC is not alone fighting this problem. So is there any light at the end of this tunnel given these dire figures? One Vancouver addiction medicine physician explains why he thinks there is. You know, it was many years ago, I was working in local news in British Columbia when the province declared a public health emergency because of the opioid crisis. And it was one of those subjects that we talked about a lot here out on the West Coast because it was having a huge impact, but really the rest of the country wasn't quite seeing it yet. So it felt like we were really on the front lines of something pretty devastating. And it was happening up and down the West Coast as well and in other parts of the United States. But truly, from a Canadian context, it felt like BC was ground zero for this scourge that had hit us, this toxic drug supply uh, that had hit us. And the number of overdoses it was causing was staggering. The number of overdose deaths it was causing was staggering. Well, here we are eight years later, and the news came out today. The 2023 numbers came out today from the BC's uh, from BC's chief coroner. And it was another record. Twenty-five, More than 2,500 people died of suspected illicit drug over-poisoning last year. That's the highest annual toll ever recorded. Here is uh, BC's Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe. This is a medical issue. Substance use is a medical issue and it needs a medical response. I think there's some fear amongst politicians to be seen as doing something radical. It's not radical. We've always treated medical uh, health issues with a medical response. Now, BC ended the year with 2,511 deaths due to toxic drugs, the highest number ever recorded, as I mentioned. It's up 5% from 2022. In November, December, the last two months of the year alone, there were an average of seven deaths a day. It is staggering. Those are all people with stories and families and dreams and hopes. And and it's just, I think we've become a little bit numb to it. But you, you look at the numbers and think, how can this continue? How is this still happening? Uh, BC's Provincial Mental Health and Addictions Minister is Jennifer Whiteside. She says the number of deaths reflects the increased volatility and toxicity in the drug supply, in the illicit drug supply in the province. She also says the province continues to scale up harm reduction services, such as access to overdose prevention sites. Here's the minister. It's important to note that the uh, illicit drug supply is very poisoned. It's very contaminated. uh, It is very volatile and it is killing people. And our goal is to keep people alive so that we can connect them to care. 
Indeed. Uh, but as I mentioned, when I was first reporting on this back in 2016, a public health emergency was declared in BC. There have been 14,000 deaths in this province alone since then. So here we are, still in the midst of a public health crisis. There seems to be no end in sight. And really, with the numbers out today, it's hard to think there's even a faint light at the end of the tunnel. But is there? Joining me now is someone who knows, Dr. Paxton Bach, is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. He's also a general internist and addiction medicine physician at St. Paul's Hospital, which is right in downtown Vancouver. Uh, Dr. Bach, thank you. Welcome back. Good evening, Ben. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, just maybe your reaction to these numbers. I think you and I had, have had spoken a few times over the last year. Maybe these aren't a big surprise, but to hear it yet again, I think... Uh, well, it's it's a bit disheartening, to be frank, and that, to say the very least, not to mention the tragedy behind those numbers. <clears throat> and it, it, yeah, these numbers are in no way a surprise. We've seen this trajectory continue over the past year, but certainly, you know, seeing seeing that summary today and seeing the chief coroner up there, it's very disheartening. It's very discouraging. Um, we're all profoundly sad and frustrated, um, and and she cut her very lonely figure up on on the podium, and I, I really feel for for her and all the advocacy that she's put into this. Yeah, because again, when, it, it, we're almost you know we're heading towards a decade now since we declared this public health emergency in BC at least. What has changed? What do you see? What did you see in 2023 that might explain why we're still well? Well, it's st- what still feels like we're really in this war of attrition against the toxic drug supply that's out there. Yeah, there, there are, there are, there have been actions taken. There, there are things happening that that I do take optimism from. I take hope from. There are, there are real, um, there are phenomenal people working in really hard conditions and doing their best. And there's certainly, certainly some um, reason to to hold that hope. But the uh, scale still has has been insufficient. The urgency and ambition has not been there, and the drug supply continues to evolve incredibly quickly the what what we see in the hospital at st paul's um every every week is worse than the last we see the immediate outcomes from people who are accessing this incredibly unpredictable supply of unregulated drugs tell me about that because i think sometimes people lose sight of that fact that not only has this evolved in a huge and terrible way even since 2016 but the toxicity of the drug supply is unlike anything we've seen before yeah, the, the potency um, is certainly um, like nothing we've seen the arrival of fentanyl and these other really powerful synthetic opioids. And that, that alone has, has really, really challenged us as far as, as a treatment system and a medical system. But that's only part of the issue. It's the unpredictability that is really uh, the enormous challenge. It's the variation between day to day or, 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 or to dose, um, not to mention fact that we're seeing other substances creep uh, into the drug supply, <clears throat> things like benzodiazepines, which are a sedative, an sedative, and then more recently, the arrival of another of another new sedative, uh, also called Trank. Um, they're, they're, it's evolving. The speed at which it's evolving is only picking up, and we are not able to pick up to keep up. Um, uh, we're 
Dr. Paxton Bach is with us this half hour. He's with UBC. He's also an addiction medicine physician at St. Paul's Hospital in downtown Vancouver. We're talking about uh, some grim statistics out today, some grim numbers. Uh, 2,511 people died of suspected toxic drug overdoses in uh, BC last year alone in 2023. That's a new high up from 2022. Um, And we're talking about just, I mean, it's been eight years now since BC declared a public health emergency. We know that the opioid crisis, the toxic drug supply crisis, illicit drug supply crisis has spread to other parts of the country. Alberta's dealing with it. Ontario's dealing with it. Every province is sort of having to deal with it now. Uh, so we're trying to see if there's not some light at the end of the tunnel here because these, these numbers obviously uh, are always cause for concern when they continue to rise. Uh, Dr. Bach, you published a pretty, a pretty a notable, uh, you co-authored a pretty notable study that was just published in the British Medical Journal recently about the idea of uh, safe supply, more or less, and how it can, in fact, if done properly, can save lives. How would that work? Yeah, I, 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 I thanks for bringing this up because it's, it, I think it's, it's work that we're all very proud of. Um, uh, just, just to contextualize this, talking about safe supply, I want to make sure that we're, we're keeping that in, in, in context as part of a broad continuum that we really do require as far as a response to the overdose crisis. But, but this particular piece has been obviously a, a topic of much conversation. Uh, and we had a, a publication come out that showed in the early days of COVID, the prescribing of a, of a regulated alternative opioid to people who are using opioids uh, actually reduced the risk of overdose deaths uh, in by 60%. And if they were getting it more than four days a week, it was up to 90% reduction in mortality risk. So really, um, there there's lots to, to talk about this particular study uh, and what we can take away from it and what we can't. But certainly, I think it's a, it's a very strong... Um, signal suggesting that this is a one of one of many um, uh, approaches that we need to be thinking very carefully about, about how we can adopt it in a, in a safe and effective way to help prevent overdose deaths and as Minister Whiteside said uh, ensure that we can connect people with the other resources that they need um, to improve you know quality of life Right. As you've always explained it, it's keeping people alive long enough to get them into treatment, right? That, that therein, lies, therein lies the challenge. Well, I mean, there, there, there's lots. There's, I think keeping people alive in and of itself is a, pro, is a pretty noble and reasonable goal, no matter, no matter what their destination is. I think that that's what we're all here for. Um, and then certainly from there, it's finding out what somebody's goals are and, and helping them move towards that to, to improve, improve their, their, their overall health and well-being and quality of life. Uh, for some, that may involve treatment. Uh, and we are doing lots of work on, on trying to improve uh, access and, and um and uh, um, um, efficiency of our of our treatment system, but that is again only one of of a whole breadth of of responses we really need to be uh, considering and implementing and scaling. I know you see the concerns that have been raised around these issues, such as where does you know is some of this safe supply ending up in other places? Uh, does it really work? You have the government of Alberta, of course, who's going down a different path, and so on. It's become I think what's happened here is that as the years go on, people become a bit numb to these numbers, um, and then all of a sudden you know politics comes in and you know there's there's different views on these things. Where do you think if you were to take simply the safe the idea of safe supply, where do you think the gaps are now? In, in terms of making it work, because obviously we're seeing these numbers continue to rise. The number of deaths, the numbers of deaths continue to rise. Well, as, I mean, as you've identified, the, the the conversation around safe supply has become very politicized and really has become 
um, um, emblematic of, of more than just what it is. And it's, it's, it's really um, being about philosophies of care. So I think as a starting place, I would really love to see the rhetoric and politicization of this toned down uh, so that we can have nuanced conversations around what this would, what this is, what this could be, uh, how to potentially uh, maximize benefits and, and monitor or minimize um, any uh, uh, unintended consequences. There are there are really are two questions: is does it can it be helpful in saving people's lives? And I think this publication is a really compelling reason to think that yes, it can. The other side of the coin is obviously what are those unintended consequences, um, and how might they be affecting people? So those are things that are, that are being actively monitored for. Um, there 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 is no empiric evidence or little empiric evidence that that they're happening on a, on a considerable. Uh, at a considerable scale, but by no means am I trying to minimize that. I think it's a really important part of the conversation as well. I just wish that we could have these conversations um, uh, in a in a um, among experts in in a way that we can we can come to consensus and inform public health policy, rather than this being um, so political and so inflammatory. Yeah, we saw it today in some of the reaction to these numbers. You mentioned uh, earlier that you saw some. You do see some light at the end of the tunnel. And sometimes when you see these numbers come out, these record numbers each year, it's hard to see it. But from your, you, no one would be better placed to see it than you. Where, where do you have cause for hope? Well, I think that the, the publication you were alluding to is one example of, of, of really sound evidence that this one intervention um, that, we've been, um, that we've been piloting does have real potential. Although I think that there is lots of work that we can do around making sure that um, that, that potential is maximized and, and any other unintended consequences are not uh, are, are not being felt. Uh, I look at I look at our addiction treatment system. I look at some of the investment that the provincial government has put into our addiction treatment system in uh, in Vancouver specifically. Um, uh, in our attempt to to design a, a system that is more accessible, that is more flexible, more patient-centered, and more and easier to navigate, and we're getting some very some very exciting early results uh, from that, um, which we really hope to scale to the rest of the province as, as soon as we possibly can. Um, some you may have uh, it, the 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 road to recovery initiative is the is the is the rather lofty title, um, and we've been really um, excited and about about some pretty ambitious projects there. There's so much good work being done by community advocates and by so many individuals working in their respective silos that I, that I, I you know, I'm enormously um, thankful for. But collectively, as a whole, clearly we are not responding at the scale that we need to be, or with the urgency or ambition that we need to be, because the numbers are getting worse. So there's no other way of describing that. Yeah. What would you like listeners to know from your vantage point? I know you have a you have a unique vantage point to this crisis, and I know that um, you know obviously with a Hippocratic oath, you know the do no harm do no harm is sort of front and center for you. But what would you like listeners to know mm-hmm. about the people you see each and every day uh, mm-hmm. and the lives you've no doubt saved? Because I know we talk about the, the people lost, we never talk about the people not lost, right? And I'm sure there are many of those too. I'd like people to to understand or recognize that this is a crisis that's touching every single one of us. This is not a Vancouver um, challenge. This is not a Lower Mainland challenge. This is not a BC challenge. This is touching every corner of North America at this point in time. Uh, And there are very few people in our province who have not been affected by this or who don't know somebody who's been affected by this, uh, whether or not they're aware of it. I'd also like people to know that, that responses are there. We do have evidence-based proven um, approaches 
to to that we could be implementing at a, at a wider scale to increase access to, to treatment, to reduce harm, and to really start to chip away at some of those upstream drivers that are contributing to this, things like, like poverty and mental health and, and homelessness and, and chronic pain and so many other contributors. Um, and lastly, I would like people to know that this is something that falls on all of us. This is something that requires action at an uh, individual level, at a municipal level, at a provincial level, at a federal level. This is, in my mind, a greater crisis than COVID-19. The amount of lives that are being claimed and the, the, the damage that is being wrought, as you've, as you've described, is, is incalculable. And, and it's on all of us to be pushing to be doing more and to be, to be pushing ourselves, our neighbours and our elected representatives to be doing more. Right. And I would always say also, beware of simplistic solutions, because there are none, and no one knows that better than you. That is a, that is a very accurate statement. Dr. Bach, as always, I appreciate your time uh, and your work. Thank you. Thanks so much. There's something really kind of scary happened at Edmonton City at uh, Edmonton City Hall yesterday. I don't know if you heard a lot about it outside of Alberta, but a man who worked as a security guard apparently is facing several firearms and arson charges after shots were fired and a Molotov cocktail exploded inside Edmonton City Hall yesterday morning. Charges have been filed against a 28-year-old man named Bajani Sarvar. Um, he's charged with reckless arson in an occupied property, possessing incendiary materials, Molotov cocktails, uh, used, using a firearm while committing an offense, careless use of a firearm, and throwing an explosive substance and discharging a firearm into a building. That's a lot of lot of stuff. Mayor uh, Amarjeet Sohi and several city councillors, the city's fire chief, city staff, journalists, a grade one class on a field trip, apparently were all inside the building attending, or well, they weren't attending, the grade one kids weren't attending an emergency management committee meeting, but the rest of them were when the shots rang out. The charges include arson, possessing incendiary materials, and discharging a firearm into a building. Police say a heavily armed man entered City Hall Tuesday through a parkade and fired a gun. They say he also lit several incendiary devices, which led to a small fire outside an elevator. No injuries were reported, but the building was filled with people at the time, including students from a grade one class that was visiting City Hall. Police Chief Dale McPhee says an unarmed security guard acted quickly to detain the suspect before police arrived. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Right. I mean, fortunately, no one was injured in all this. Uh, joining me now is Dave Breckenridge. He's editor of the Edmonton Sun and the Edmonton Journal. He's host of the 10-3 podcast. Uh, Dave, welcome back for the first chat in 2024. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. This sounds like, I mean, I remember seeing it unfold yesterday, and then we saw some of the images that went by. This was a, this was a scary incident. How did that unfold from, from your perspective? I gather, I think you had uh, members of, uh, of your team down there at the time. I, well, I, I, members of our team were not actually in City Hall at the time. It's one of those days, you know, committee meetings don't get as much coverage right. as big council meetings. I know that one of, I, we were alerted to it because one of my staff, uh, one of our columnists was monitoring the meeting from home. He was he had the meeting on while he was doing some other writing, and all of a sudden he says, "Council's been shut down. Um, they've been evacuated. There's sound of possible gunshots." And we just got automatically, I was like, "Oh my gosh, what's going on at City Hall?" And so we scrambled people to get down to City Hall, and and in the intervening time, we we start seeing that oh my gosh, there's gunfire at City Hall. Um, 
council had to be locked down. The building was locked down. The streets around city hall were, were shut down for public safety. And, and as the details came out, it just, it all sounded really surreal, right? Like this notion of, of someone coming into the, the building, which for people who know, don't know Edmonton city hall, you can wander around in the main area outside council chambers pretty freely um, I believe there's there's a little more security before you have to can go into council chambers, but it's not like really shut down. It's not like to go into the legislature or the House of Commons where you have to pass through like checkpoints or be invited to be there. Um, and it, so it is a pretty open space. And and just the thought of someone coming up into that that space where there's often public events that happen in that space too. I mean, it's lucky that there wasn't some kind of uh, event or press availability going on in the, in the main atrium at city hall. Um, and so we hear about this guy coming in and he's got an automatic weapon and he has Molotov cocktails and, and you, and you just think the worst and it is lucky that, that no one was actually injured in this incident. Yeah. Uh, one of your columnists was writing today just about, about how scary it was, how much worse it could have been. What do we know about the suspect? I understand a 28 year old was charged today in this, uh, in this whole scary incident. Yeah, I mean, we're still trying to find out details about him. I, I've I've heard reports that that you know he was a volunteer, local volunteer organization. But the the things that we do know for sure, he's a he's a father of three, married, lives in an apartment on the north side, uh, worked for the company. Coincidentally, the uh, he was detained by uh, a commissioner um, at City Hall before police arrived. He worked for the commissioners as well. Uh, he didn't work at City Hall, but he worked for the same security company as the as the man who ultimately detained him. Um, he he had a video published online uh, before this all took place, and in it he starts by saying that you know he's he has a mission to carry out, and I don't want to get too into the weeds or give this guy yeah. philosophy a lot of airtime, but there was a video released that it, it appears to be from the suspect who talks about a mission and talks about uh, assorted grievances. And it's not like a manifesto that you'd hear in other types of incidents, but he does rattle off a laundry list of complaints about affordability and about the disease of wokeism, but also the war in Gaza. And it just seems kind of like not a unifying message. So we're not clear on what exactly he was trying to do. And the strange thing is, and I can't, in the vi- in one of the the videos I've seen of of security footage inside Edmonton City Hall, and I believe it was footage that was uh, first published by your colleagues at Global, Global Edmonton. It, mm-hmm. it appears that his gun stopped working, and I can't say for sure. I'm not a gun expert, but he's got this large um, semi-automatic rifle, and he fires it, and then he sets it down, takes off his coat, and walks off without the gun. So I assume like. I have to assume that there was some kind of malfunction. Again, I'm not, a, I'm not up to speed on 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 firearms, but it it does seem strange the fact that that he does set his weapon down at some point. Yeah, and and, and I mean, hats off to the commissioner uh, who 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 
detained him essentially and waited for police to arrive. Again, I guess we'll find out a lot more about the circumstances and and perhaps what 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 happened. But but uh, just in the moment, uh, that was some pretty fast thinking from the commissioner, who I gather was like many commissioners. If you ever worked in one of the like on Parliament Hill, all the security guards are commissioners. They're often ex-military, and mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, they take they take it ser- they take it seriously, and they and they and they command. They're they're a commanding presence, um, you know, I, I, and I. I I was impressed with what happened yesterday, obviously. Yeah, and I mean, the, the chief of police, Dale McPhee, um, heralded the actions of this commissioner, um, and his his employer also had kind words to say about him. The mayor had kind words to say about him, and, and he obviously put himself in je- in danger to try and to try and deal with this individual and ultimately came out of it not just unscathed, but with the with this uh, a suspect in custody uh, for police to to arrest once they were arrived on scene. Yeah, it reminded me, of course, of what happened. And I was actually not in Canada when the Ottawa incident happened, but I was in England when an MP there was was killed. Unfortunately, uh, a woman by the name of Joe Cox. And and I've spoken to different security experts over the years about politicians, rhetoric, and violence. And you know, every single security expert will tell you, you know, it's a sadly, it is a matter of time before something bad happens. And uh, I suppose one place we haven't thought much about over the years, I mean, the city hall is right around the corner from where I live here. It's not, I mean, it's secure, but it's not particularly secure, as you mentioned, compared to a legislature or compared to Parliament Ottawa. Um, But I mean, sometimes it feels like we really need to start thinking quite seriously. We don't want these places to become fortresses. But, uh, you know, we've seen the consequences of we don't know the motivation here. But we also uh, understand that these these are vulnerable targets. Yeah, they are. And I, I mean, there is a heated rhetoric around all sorts of politicians at all sorts of levels. And we want to have a healthy debate in, in country in this country around policy. Like I know right now, Edmonton City Council gets a lot of flack because of, of property tax increases or its spending choices. Or um, just recently, there was a lot of controversy because the, the paper bag essentially a tax, but you're not paying it to the government. But the fee you pay if you want a paper bag at the grocery store or the drive through in Edmonton is going up from 15 cents to a quarter. Um, and the price of a reusable bag that stores are charging is going up from a dollar to two dollars. And people are frustrated by those kind of nickel and diming kind of things. And and it's one thing for people to criticize, but it's another one they let the kind of anger over these seemingly mundane things kind of carry itself over into um, overheated rhetoric or even violence. And obviously the individual who's charged in this had some grievances that may or may not be, you can lay at the feet of the, of a municipal government, but it's troubling to think that that's the choice that people are making. And perhaps there is something that needs to be done about making our politicians feel more secure in their place of work. And not just politicians, mind you, like city hall is full of, uh, quote unquote, civilian staff, um, Mm -hmm. And we don't want to see harm come to any of them either. Even if the politicians may be the target, we don't want to see harm come to anybody. But it's not just the politicians who are who are in potential danger in these situations. Yeah, I, I think in situations such as this, you know, it, it all all is well that ends well to, to a certain extent in this one. But a reminder that when politics are in play, I know there's been battles between the province and the city of Edmonton recently. And when the rhetoric gets heated, just remember, as an elected official specifically, to tone it down. Just to mm-hmm. tone it down. Because you think it's all harmless on social media. You used to think, oh, you know, we'll, we'll snipe or... But, but, you know, there are those out there, and we saw that's what happened in England, uh, 
there are people out there, and I'm not saying that's the case here, but there are people who will take those words seriously. And, and you know, as the famous line goes, uh, they showed up with, you know, a gun and a grievance, right? I mean, that's 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 the story of many an unfor- many a horrible incident in, in, in and around, you know, whether it be the U.S. here or other places. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, we saw it on the federal election campaign trail. Obviously, there weren't firearms involved, but people were pelting uh, then-liberal leader, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, with rocks at, at one of at one of his campaign stops. That's the kind of thing that we don't want to see in Canadian politics, in part because it, it eventually leads to politicians being less accessible to the public which they serve, right? And and we don't want our politicians inaccessible to us, but we also don't want to see them put in harm's way. We're talking with Dave Breckenridge this half hour. He is editor of the Edmonton Sun and Edmonton Journal, host of the 103 podcast. Uh, well, it's it's hard to hard to figure exactly how to how to sort of approach this, but simply to say that Tucker Carlson's in Alberta tonight. He's been in Alberta all day. There's a picture of him with Jordan Peterson. Daniel Smith has obviously rolled out the red carpet for him. Uh, Conrad Block as well. What's he doing there, and why is the premier hanging out with him? He's here to liberate Canada. Ben, haven't I you heard that. that? I mean, that's he was promoting. He was promoting his visit. Is I mean, we're here to liberate Canada. I mean, he's look. He's a he's a media personality. He's got a profile. He's got fans. He's here to speak to the masses, as it were. And people who are fans of his are out shelling out money to to listen to him talk. I mean, that at the at the base of it, that's what it is. And. The controversy comes in because people feel that a figure as divisive as Tucker Carlson shouldn't be in Canada speaking to Canadians. I mean, it is odd to see the premier share a stage with a guy who's basically called Canada dictatorship, says he needs to liberate Canada and not like all of that kind of stuff. And and even his more controversial thoughts on like the George Floyd killing or, or on the... Yeah. 2020 election or on the January 6th insurrection. Um, I mean, it is all kind of bonkers. And so I I get there's a lot of criticism of of Daniel Smith taking the stage with him. And in some cases, I, I feel the critics are right. It is strange to see Daniel Smith taking the stage with Tucker Carlson. On the flip side, just his existence and his appearance in Canada, I, I, I don't get why people are so up in arms. Like we, we I, Alberta went through this, I guess a decade or more ago now. I remember when Ann Coulter was the conservative pundit who everyone hated and who thought people thought was evil and shouldn't have a stage here. And she came here and sold out events and we all lived our lives the next day. The world didn't collapse. You know, time moves on. It, it's one of those things. Yeah. I, I, we get too worked up about it. What does that say about it? I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, again, these are things that people like to get really worked up about. And if you want to start finding reasons to criticize Tucker Carlson, we can be here all night. I mean, even Fox <laughs> thought he was out of control, right? Um, yeah. and, and that's why ultimately he lost his, his very, very handsomely paid gig. Um, I guess the only... It's the idea of kind of rolling out the red carpet. Who is behind this whole thing? Because I was reading last week that they were sort of struggling to give away tickets at one point. I'm not sure that's 100% true or not. Well, I mean, this is this is a... A promotions company that's put on other events, that's brought other speakers to Alberta, the Dalai Lama, um, Michelle Obama, George W. Bush. Like, <laughs> I apologize, I can't remember the name of the company off the top of my head. But these, these, this events company has has brought all sorts of, of 
high profile speakers to Alberta for various, you know, various events. And there's some of them generate controversy and some of them don't because some of them fall within what people would deem good taste and and some don't. And again, that's their prerogative. That's the nice thing about living in a free society is we can bring in people that are seen as controversial and they can have a conversation. And I like reading some of the coverage. I wasn't at the, at the Smith uh, event and it's not like there was a live feed that I could have sat and watched. Cause I admittedly was curious as to how it was going to go. I was curious if, if Carlson was going to needle the premier about some more controversial things and how she'd respond to that. And admittedly, like looking, looking at the story from, from my colleague at the Calgary Herald, um, he did kind of push her on some things that maybe the premier shouldn't be talking about. He did push her on the notion of these uh, four men who were arrested at the Coots border crossing during the whole convoy blockade. Um, And they were charged with some pretty serious crimes. And she kind of skirted the issue. She admitted that perhaps, you know, she shouldn't be talking about things like that because there is a, a notion of, the independence of, of crown prosecutors in Alberta and in Canada. And, and so she, perhaps she shouldn't talk about it. She didn't get sucked into a controversy. She didn't step in any line. Man. So, you know, aside from the argument that perhaps she shouldn't have been sharing a stage with him, at least she acquitted herself well in, in not stepping in it. Right. I, I mean, you know, Tucker Carlson, listen, as a broadcaster, <laughs> I, I appreciate his skill. Let's put it, let's leave it at that. I appreciate his skill, yeah. but it's a grift. It's a grift. It's always been a grift. He's up here grifting. He's the last person we should be taking advice for on how to run a country. The guy can barely run his own career. I mean, that that's what I, I leave it at that. Like, again, he's a talented orator. He is mm-hmm. a bit, I mean, some of his, where, whatever's happened, I mean, obviously he has his legions of critics and we don't need to talk about all of that. But, uh, but certainly in the U.S., I mean, what happened with where he was fetching ratings in that all-important ratings war in the U.S. became a very, a very bleak kind of thing. And I mean, the, only the, thing that, the notion yeah. that it, it's bleak because he was still the top-rated TV host on Fox yes. when he lost his job. It, it, so what's bleak is perhaps that, there, that those views that people in mainstream society found so offensive were getting that kind of audience. Yeah. And, and, and I think part of it was, you know, he obviously had clashes within, you know, he was too big for his boots was sort of the thing. And then there was a bit of a changing of the guard at, uh, at Fox uh, within the upper echelons of News Corp, of course, within the Murdoch family. I think there was some, some run-ins there. But uh, while he was making money, I gather, Fox had no problem with him at all is when the advertisers started to disappear. Um, I mean, it's a lesson uh, in this business. It's just odd to see the premier of a province kind of roll out the red carpet for the likes of him. I mean, you could acknowledge he's there. You could even show up and watch yeah. if you want, but to sort of take part in it was what I thought was a bit strange. Cause you know, would you do that for everybody? I, I, I don't know. It was odd. Yeah. I, I, I would tend to agree. It, it was strange to hear that Daniel Smith would be appearing with Tucker Carlson. Like it makes sense. You know, Jordan Peterson's there. Conrad Black is there, you know, a kind of conservative, panel talking about issues in a certain way sure there's an audience for that and if there's an audience for that let them have their audience let them sell their tickets but if yeah. once you get into oh, well. government officials being involved it it raises the question and then you know on the it, it makes you wonder and we can relitigate the debate that's been had and the opposition ndp through as soon as it was announced and 
frequently is in the lead up to it is repeatable. Why is the premier lending this person credence? It's a good question, and it's one that the premier has never really answered that well, in my opinion. Well, you know, I mean, we live we live in a democracy. If you don't like the company the premier keeps, remember next time next time you go vote. <laughs> That's how this works, right? Uh, I, I I did doorstep doorstep um, doorstep rather um, Conrad Black once in London, and I was there when he got convicted, actually. So I have sort of this idea. And won an award for for that piece. So I have the kind of this strange uh, history. Very, very. Uh, he wouldn't know it at all. But I have this strange history with Conrad Black, having having uh, sort of watched him fall and then stuck a microphone in his face that he was none too happy about in London many years ago. Dave, uh, as always, I uh, will leave it at that. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> You may know, if I've talked about it before, that I spent many years, 20 years, as a TV reporter, worked around the world and, you know, got to see a lot of beautiful things. We shot a lot of beautiful stories over time, but a lot of it was just pretty rushed, right? It was pretty slapped together. Some of it was really nice, but it was always could have been better. It could have been better. So whenever I see something that looks almost pristine, I stop and watch. And that's what my reaction was watching a short documentary called The Last Repair Shop. Um, It's this heartwarming, thought-provoking short doc. I mean, short, it's almost 40 minutes long. And it's one of the nominees this year for Best Documentary Short Subject at the upcoming Academy Awards. It tells the story of the dedicated few still repairing instruments that are provided for free to public school kids in Los Angeles, one of the last public school systems to do so. It's a story about the instruments, the people who fix them, and the children who play them. Have a listen. Well, I'm going to play you the whole trailer because the whole trailer gives you a really nice idea of what the film's about. I love the violin. I think a lot of people see a broken thing and they just think it's broken. It could be anything. Maybe it's public schools. Or maybe it's the United States or any other part of the world. Maybe it's just a $20 fiddle found out to swap me. But when we see a broken thing, we think, oh, with a little something here, a little something there, We can fix the part that's broken and make things whole again. It's difficult work. But no matter what, you do whatever it takes because... Fixing stuff is one of the best things that humans do. That's why this is not just a musical instrument repair shop. When an instrument breaks, there's a student without an instrument. No, no, no. Not in our city. Even if they don't know me, we know it could change their whole life. There you have it. I mean, it is it often, it complexes that, you know, it, it charts the complex stories too, by the way, of the, the adults that you heard in, in that trailer who fix the instruments because they too have their stories. And of course, you know, all kinds of, they repair all kinds of instruments from pianos to tubas to violins and clarinets and the impact that their work has 
on kids of all ages and backgrounds. It is the latest work and the latest Oscar nod for Halifax Board of Filmmaker Ben Proudfoot, who co-directs this one with Chris Bowers. The pair were also nominated for the same category for 2020's A Concerto is a Conversation. And Ben won the 2022 Oscar for Best Documentary Short Feature for the absolutely excellent The Queen of Basketball uh, on his own, the long untold story of a trailblazer and phenom in basketball who actually played at the Montreal Olympics, uh, Lucia Harris. And uh, it is great to have Ben Proudfoot with me here, Oscar winner, and now multiple Oscar, well, already multiple Oscar nominee. Ben, thanks for your time and congratulations. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I can't imagine it ever gets stale. But what was your reaction when you heard, <laughs> uh, the, heard the name again uh, yesterday morning? Oh, yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's, um, you know, it's like falling in love. It's it's an amazing experience. Um, every time it's different because it's a new story. It's a new group of people that you're advocating for that are part of the project. Um, and when the last repair shop was named yesterday morning, it was first of all, it was very early. They named them off at 530 a.m. Uh, inexplicably. Um, and, uh, it was just pandemonium. I mean, we were there with, uh, the filmmaking team and the, uh, repair people and a few of the students who are in the film. And it was just, it was awesome. My, I lost use of my knees momentarily, <laughs> sort of buckled there, uh, but it was, it was an incredible thrilling moment. We're so excited. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that aspect. I mean, I hadn't thought of that aspect of it because, of course, I remember when you won in 2022 uh, for the Queen of Basketball. And of course, Lucia Harris had passed not long before yeah. you were nominated. But you really celebrated that win with her family. It was, you know, it yes. was not just you. It was it was everyone that was in the movie. And and I, I hadn't thought, of course, that this would have been a huge day for for everybody in 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 the last repair shop. The kids too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody. I mean. You know, this is a unique category in that it's not an individual who's being uh, nominated. It's the whole film. So it's kind of like best picture or best international feature. The best short uh, documentary category. We're, we're, Chris and I basically just re represent the entire film. So it's it's God, it's it's close to 100, uh, if not more than 100 people who are represented by this nomination. Right. And if you do get it, I highly suggest you watch it. There is no sort of voice of God, as we call it. There's no sort of overwrought uh, VO as a voiceover in it. This is the people themselves telling their stories. And and that's sort of your philosophy of filmmaking is just to, to get out of the way and capture the story as well as you can and make it as, as beautiful as possible to watch. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. You know, we, I think everybody walking the face of the earth has a great you know, Oscar winning story. I think it's just all about how it's framed and, you know, bringing the craft of filmmaking, music and sound design and cinematography, et cetera, editing, bringing all that to play to make it a compelling and interesting story that paces along and sort of releases information in an interesting way, uh, in a visual way too. That's, that's yeah. what we love to do. And in a musical way, too, in, in this one, obviously, yeah. the, the, the audio adds so much to this one, I thought. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when you're making a film about a musical instrument repair shop, 
you, you, your your uh, composer and your your sound uh, supervising sound editor begin to drool <laughs> because it's sort of like oh we can you know the section about the pianos we can be heavy on the pianos and over here we can have the tuba and you know the sound designers there thinking about each oh when they screw in this piece we can get a real cool ASMR you know squeak on the screw and and then of course in in the film it climaxes in this big orchestral um you know cherry on top performance under the end credits where alumni of the past you know 70 years of LUSD come together in a multi-generational performance to end the show which is just uh, was an awe-inspiring thing to film it felt watching it like it was really a story waiting to be told how did you come across mm -hmm. it how how did that how did that begin where did the idea come from yeah, so so you know, ideas can come from anywhere, and in this case, uh, Jeremy Lambert, who's a producer on the film, his brother is a luthier, and this article about the repair shop from a number of years ago caught his eye, and he brought it to me and said, "This this is an interesting place," and uh, you know, I've made some films about craftspeople before. I love I love films about craftspeople, and I think the thing that I noticed first was that it it said that it was one of the last in the country. And there was something poignant about that. And uh, I immediately shared it with Chris, who I was making a concerto as a conversation with at the time. And he's not only an amazing film composer, he scored, you know, The Color Purple and Haunted Mansion this year, a number of other films. He's an amazing composer. Right. He's also a super talented pianist who went to LAUSD. And I asked him, ah. have you ever heard of this shop? And he hadn't. And it was then that we kind of looked at each other and knew, you know, we've got to make this movie. And we spent the next four years doing just that. Four years. Yeah. I mean, you can tell, as I said, you know, I spent a lot of time as a TV reporter and that would have been about 40 minutes. Mm. Right. So, I mean, but I'm sure when you <laughs> arrived at, at this warehouse, I mean, you know, I think sometimes when people see a finished product and it's so beautifully put together, they forget that it must have been, I mean, finding those stories. I mean, you. I didn't want to say you stumbled on, but there were some incredibly compelling stories from the people who do the instrument fixing in there. And I'm just wondering, that must have taken yeah. a while to flesh out and bring and put it together. In under 40 minutes, you pack a lot of story into less than 40 minutes. Yeah. Well, I'll say two things. In terms of my role, stumbling is the right word. Um, I mean, we went down there and there's about 12 people that work at the shop. And initially, everyone was quite reticent. Um, you know, they had had um, some news articles, like I said, the one the one that I read, which was about how the, it was underfunded and there was a backlog. So they were they were reticent, honestly, to deal with us. And so I made a big sort of pitch to them of why I wanted to make it and sort of where our heart was on it. And uh, at the end, I had my big Jerry Maguire moment of kind of like, who's with me? And uh, four people raised their hand, and that's the four people you meet in the movie. We did not interview anybody else. We just interviewed those four. It was a coincidence, total coincidence, believe it or not, that there was one person from each department. And if you watch the movie, you, you, you and knowing this, you're going to say, oh, my God, I can't believe that these four I, people. I'm saying are it the, right now. I'm saying yeah, it right I mean, now, because each of them. You struck gold. Yeah. You struck gold. Yeah. Did, did, absolutely did. And then. On the other side, where there was a lot of heavy lifting was in the editing, because we interviewed each one of those people for hours. Now, how do you get it down to 40 minutes? And that's where our editor, Nick Wright, who did an amazing job where most of the 
you know, time is spent in documentary filmmaking, it's often in the edit room, sort of rearranging what order should we place it in? What's the essence of this person's story when they tell you their whole life story from birth to present? You got to pick, okay, what's this five to seven minute part of it that we're going to put in this part of the movie? So he did an amazing job. Yeah. And it was just an amazingly uplifting movie, too. Um, and I mean, it, it says in the trailer the idea that something is something that's broken can be fixed. Yeah. And I, that that's the idea that's sort of under it. Like you remove the layer of music and you remove the, you know, the oil cans and the screwdrivers. I, I think that fundamentally is what it's about is we all have broken relationships and broken promises and broken things in our lives. And, and I don't think everything can be fixed, but some things can. And what these people do is they help us summon the will to try um, because I think it is possible if, if you have enough caring and, and hope and patience, you can fix broken things. And that's what these people do every day. Here are the nominees for Best Documentary Short Subject. Audible, Matt Ogins and Jeff McLean. Lead Me Home, Pedro Koss and John Shank. The Queen of Basketball, Ben Proudfoot. Three Songs for Benazir, Elizabeth Mirzai and Gulastan Mirzai. When We Were Bullies, Jay Rosenblatt. And the Oscar goes to The Queen of Basketball. Yeah, I was watching the Academy Awards when that happened. Ben Proudfoot, who won that night, is with us. He's up again. Uh, he's co-directed a new film called The Last Repair Shop, which was nominated yesterday in the same category for an Academy Award this year. Uh, ben, I, I, I watched it again today. What was that like? What was that like? It it was, uh, as you can imagine, a moment of sheer terror <laughs> and... And delight all at the same time. Honestly, I don't really have many memories of giving my speech. I, you know, it's, it sort of was like a blackout situation. Um, and, but I, I got up there. I said what I wanted to say and, and uh, found myself backstage. <laughs> but it was an amazing experience. I mean, the whole night was just surreal, right? You're just surrounded by the most famous people in the world carrying an Academy Award. Just, you're like, what am I doing yeah. here? You know, Are they um, heavy? Very heavy, <laughs> surprisingly heavy. You know, it's like 11 or 12 pounds. You, you hold in your hand and say, geez, you know, wouldn't want to, yeah. wouldn't want to get hit with one of these things. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you have a nice place for it on your mantle, I suppose. I would imagine. I have it at the office. Yeah, I have it there. And okay. sometimes I'll leave it on my colleagues' desks if they're having a hard day or have to do something hard that day. <laughs> Yeah. I, I, tell me a bit about about your start, because I, I, I realized you went to USC, and that's kind of how you ended up, uh, University of Southern California, that's how you ended up out there. But you started off in, you, I mean, you grew up in Halifax, right? You still have a lot of connections to home, I gather? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Halifax. Uh, my mom is still there. Uh, as a teenager, I was a magician. That's what first brought me to uh, to LA to go to the Magic Castle Junior program here. And then sort of switched into movies after magic and went to USC, started a company out of school, started making short documentaries and built a business called Breakwater Studios where we make films for brands and institutions and things like that. And with the profits we make from that uh, endeavor, we make a couple, you know, two or three original films every year and, and, um, the last repair shop is is this year's film. 
Right. And you've worked with a lot of really interesting people. I mean, the New York Times, I think, uh, Steph Curry, Shaq, was it Steph Curry and Shaq O'Neal who were involved in, in, yeah. in the Queen of Basketball? Yeah. I mean, that's it's interesting to do those projects and those collaborations because that's some those are some big names. Yeah. Now, we've been incredibly fortunate for some of the world's biggest platforms, like you said, you know, the New York Times, Time Magazine, L.A. Times. Um, the Last Repair Shop is now on Disney Plus and Hulu. Um, have taken uh, notice of our work and and agreed to distribute the films and and likewise many amazing celebrities and luminaries have attached themselves to help get the films out there. Steph Curry, St- Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Ava DuVernay, Orlando Bloom. We've we've worked with a lot of amazing people um, to align with with the stories we're trying to tell. So what's next, Ben? I don't know how much you can talk about it, but what's what's next? Are you looking at doing <laughs> longer longer form, or what? What uh, what's what's in your what's on your bucket list? Yeah, it's a, it's a common question people often ask. You know, when sure. when will I move on to feature documentaries or feature films? And I'm and I'm sure there will be those in my future. But you know, it's hard it's hard to give up the uh, independence and sort of self reliance of the short documentary world. It's it's a format that hasn't yet been tainted by the commerciality that sort of pervades the rest of the film industry. So films get made not because uh, they are going to make a bunch of money, but because they should get made. They ought to be. It's a story that ought to be told. And I love that. I love the purity of that. I love how the short documentary leverages the internet better than any other form of cinema. And just as a, as a whole, I think the short documentary is the most democratic form of movie making. You know, it's the least expensive. So the most people all around the world have the chance of making a short documentary. And for that reason, I really think it's the future of filmmaking. There's also a genius in brevity too. I mean, I think by the end of the queen of basketball, yeah. I felt like that story had been told. I'm sure it could have gone on for much longer, but it, it encapsulated Lucia Harris's stories in such a beautiful way. And the same with the last repair shop. I mean, it could have gone on for another hour and a half, but it, it worked. It worked in 40 minutes. It was perfect. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I agree. I think, you know, we learn in the first art class in high school that we're trying to do the to do the most with the least, that our goal is elegance. Right. Um, but I think, you know, with the streaming environment today, they're trying to keep us on the platform as long as possible. Keep us True. listening and watching as long as possible. So I love I love the short form. Well, Ben, it's been a great pleasure. We'll be watching for you on March the 10th to see if your uh, Oscar doesn't get a companion. Good luck and thank you. <laughs> thank you. Take care. We're going to get loud in this half hour, so to speak. Uh, you know, We're not going to ca- get too carried away here. But you may be familiar with the truckload of personal finance and employment trends we've been seeing and hearing about over the past few years. Most of them, of course, have these catchy titles because they're driven by social media engagement. Stuff like quiet quitting. Remember that one? Quiet quitting where you just sort of stop working. Rage applying. I'm trying to remember what that one meant. I think that was applying for a bunch of jobs because you're not happy at work. Uh, bare minimum Mondays. That one's been talked about a lot. That's Well, that's exactly what it sounds like, right? Uh, doing as little as possible on Mondays. A lot of them sound a bit fictional. A lot of them sound like things that people don't really do. This one, though, the latest for 2024, struck me as a constructive one. So I thought, let's talk about it. Let's find out more about it. It's called Loud Budgeting. Thus, let's get loud. And what it purports to do is to open the door for transparent conversations about saving priorities and budget constraints. 
Uh, here are some examples from the social media site TikTok. Not necessarily a place you should turn to for financial advice, but have a listen. It's not, I don't have enough. It's, I don't want to spend. We're doing drinks or dinner. We're not doing both. Oh, sorry, I can't. I don't want to spend $100 going out to dinner with you when I could put $100 in my high yield savings account. My friend wants to go out to dinner. I'm gonna just going to text them, loud budgeting. You get the point, right? It's essentially it's essentially putting up barriers around how you spend your money. Um, now, I don't know how much of a problem this is for everybody. I remember back to a time when it was, you know, you'd have certain friends in your life who would uh, suggest going to places that were expensive and then you'd all have to share the bill and it always felt like you were... You didn't want to really be there in the first place. If only you'd thought of, if only you'd been louder, right? Uh, so again, part of the approach here is bringing up the always taboo topic of money and finances to make sure the people around you understand what you're planning, why, uh, and so forth. And maybe why you would either suggest an alternative way to do something uh, that doesn't involve spending a lot of money, or maybe you're going to beg out altogether. Joining me now is Leslie Ann Scorgi. She's a Toronto-based personal finance columnist, a MeVest founder, best-selling author of Modern Couples, The Modern Couples Money Guide. Uh, Leslie Ann, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I, you know, I, I'm not that I'm addicted to these names like quiet quitting and all this stuff, but I thought loud budgeting was a really cool sounding concept. Uh, what is it? Oh, it's basically where you get the the authority to decline invitations and cite your budget as the reason. So you, you don't have to lie to your friends anymore about like, oh, I have a scheduling conflict. I can't go out for dinner with you to that really expensive restaurant. You can actually tell them straight up, I'm not going to the restaurant because it's too expensive. It does not align with my financial goals. And that is loud budgeting. Right. I guess I guess to get there, it begins with the premise that we're not particularly comfortable talking about this stuff. So, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had people talk to me away from that friend, for instance, about, I can't believe we had to go to this restaurant and split the bill when they ordered expensive wine, et cetera, et cetera. You know these conversations. Absolutely. And I think everybody is just waiting for a little bit of relief here. Like it has been, you know, a heck of a time in the past 18 months. Inflation has been uh, a big issue for many people. And so, you know, now that we have this, I don't know, like new vibe where people are like wanting to talk about how they're feeling with their finances, they're wanting to be more open. Like this doesn't need to be that taboo topic. I think so many people, especially last year, were feeling really rotten about their finances and they're looking at this new trend which is kind of like the inaugural trend for 2024 when it right. comes to to money i think they're looking at this and they're like oh you know I, I feel good like i feel like it's okay for me to talk about this and other people might be going through the same thing so like it used to be certainly like when when i was growing up talking about things like your pay or even Talking about money at the oh, dinner table. Hell was, no! Hell it was like no. right up there with religion, right? Oh no, I know more about. I know. I know people. I know everything about their lives other than the money. Other than the money, right? Yep. And then, and now you're like, okay, I can actually get to know somebody on a whole new level and find out what they're working on. And so it's really interesting because I think the loud budgeting trend is actually helping communities come together. I think. People are enjoying sharing their goals, which, by the way, means you have to have goals to begin with. Like yes. to actually do this trend, yes. you need to kind of get clear on a few things that you want to work on. And then it's it's honest conversations about taboo 
topics. And like, you can gauge what honesty level you want to go at. Like some people will say their pay and their total household compensation. Others will be a little bit more, um, let's say reserved, and they'll just cite their goals generally. But I think it's all in the spirit of being more transparent. And, And that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, we often use the examples of restaurants, or maybe it's going away for a weekend somewhere. But all of that has gotten more expensive in the past little while. So these are you're making some tough choices about when you're going out for dinner because it can be a big dent in your weekly budget, and or you just want to do it now and then, and that could be harder for for people who who aren't budgeting the same way to understand. But you've said it already. You need to have a plan if you want a loud budget. You need to have a budget, right? A hundred percent. Right. Like, and the the reality is, is it doesn't actually matter what kind of template you want to use. You can use a spreadsheet that you find on, on Google. You can use an app. The idea is that you are like budgeting to begin with using a tool, even if it's pen to paper, a tool that works for you. And in your budget, this is where you kind of work in those goals. So for some people this year, they're going to be maybe saving for a down payment for other people making a budget to begin with is their goal. And still for others, they're maybe focused on like paying down debt, whatever it is. It's, it's very much about making sure your budget aligns to those goals. And then as you're having these conversations, as your friends, oh my heavens, like ask you to go on another bachelor party or another bachelorette party, you can, you can actually say, you know what? Hey, this doesn't work, but I could go camping in the summer. And uh, you may find that you're in good company in the process because other people, if they hear you cite your reasons, like my budget, my travel budget this year is... I don't know, $1,000 or whatever it is, they might actually pipe up in that same like WhatsApp conversation and say, well, that's actually mine too. I I don't think I can do this as well. I I like the idea of camping this summer. Sounds even better. Yeah, maybe you can have have those more frank conversations because I think you're right. I think what happens a lot of the time is that sort of people – people start down a path and they don't know how to turn around. And that goes for everybody, right? Like someone says, oh, this is a good idea. And you think, wow, that's really expensive. I don't think I can afford that. Uh, but sometimes you're just frank about it. Um, Absolutely. Good things can like, happen. And you know, here's the other thing is I think everybody has that one, maybe two friends that are like the fancy friends. Yeah. I, I have I have a super fancy friend. She's a very yeah, the, close friend of mine. $200, $200 bottle of wine friends. Like, yeah. Ben, yes, yes. This is this is my fancy friend. Like I go out for You're doing dinner. doing the bath at the table. I, I literally like I know what's gonna happen. And so I she's great and we plan accordingly, but I'm like, wow, you know, you don't want to do too many of those too often, right? Because your whole night could easily be $500. And let's face it, most people, that's not even feasible at a time like this in our economy. No. And and, and it's interesting too, because I think sometimes those who tend to throw around money because they have it to throw around, if if you told them you were uncomfortable with it, or you just didn't feel comfortable with the way that, because they, they sort of, oftentimes the sort of the bill gets divvied up equally right uh, exactly yeah. but, but so that makes this so then everyone starts to feel uncomfortable around the money element of all of this whereas i think ultimately no one really wants to feel uncomfortable with this so you said i don't want to go to a really expensive restaurant normally the person who throws the money around would understand that i think i agree i think that the whole reason people are scared 
to say this to their fancy friend, like, I can't do this because of my budget is because they've never said it before. Right. And once you start speaking honestly to your fancy friends or your regular friends, they'll come alongside you and encourage you. And I think that's actually one of the cool things about the loud budgeting trend is you're finding that the more you like actually say it out loud, the more support you're getting. And it's because the people who are around you generally care that you do well, financially, personally, professionally, they ask you about your goals. So it may turn out that your fancy friend is like, wow, I should rip a page out of your book and try it too. You're doing great. Yeah. And and, you, and it also leads to, I mean, maybe, maybe said fancy friend has some good advice. Maybe. You never know. A hundred percent. Like maybe they are rolling in dough because they have done something real good and you need to take a page out of their book. Leslie Ann Scorgi is with us this half hour. Her book is called Modern Couples Money Guide. Um, She is a Toronto-based personal finance columnist. We're talking about loud budgeting. It's something that Leslie Ann's just written about in the Toronto Star, and it's sort of the the first new personal finance trend for 2024. I suppose the the thing then, as you mentioned, is you need to have the plan. You need to set some goals. I was interested in you saying that you shouldn't have too few or too many because you don't want to take on too many personal finance goals, even if you're loud budgeting, uh, and, and you don't want to take on too few, but there is a there is a capacity there to give yourself too much, too much like fitness commitments. Uh, absolutely right. And you know, when you're feeling scattered, it's always because you're pulled in too many directions. So when, um, when I teach my loud budgeting community, which I'll tell you about in a second, when I teach them, I encourage two or three goals max for the year that you can really sink your teeth into and focus on. It's going to be unique and different from every person. So for some, it's going to be a debt reduction goal. For others, it's going to be savings goals. Still others, it's going to be behavioral based where it's like, I want to feel better or I want to make stronger financial decisions or increase my financial acumen. All of these goals are going to allow you to say them out loud. So you can't say them out loud if you don't have them to begin with. And generally, the next step in that process, once you've kind of defined it or your your two or three goals, is you you work it into your budget. You may be one of the, these people that makes like a vision board. And um, in, in my community, uh, we've got a couple thousand people in there, and sometimes like my community members actually show their their vision boards in January and they say like this is what I'm working on and some of them are very detailed right like they're decluttering targets or selling of things targets like purging like there's saving schools it's very very cool so i think there's different ways you can do loud budgeting you can have it be like very reactive uh, saying yes or no to certain social invitations it can also be in your own community. If you don't have a personal finance community that you are a part of, that could be part of your processes. Find some like-minded people this year. Yeah, that, that would be, I mean, you're right. It's, it's interesting because that's one of, if you think of all the things that we share in common, uh, having financial goals, budgetary goals, living within your means, not you know, no reckless spending, everyone shares that more or less. I mean, there are a few clearly who don't, but, but most of us are in the same boat when it comes to this stuff. I I think so. And I always re-remind people, like, you have to learn it to get good at it. So no one is born with money skills. And I I always correct people when they say, oh, I'm just bad with money, or 
I, you know, I, I was born this way, like nobody is. And uh, what I also like about this loud budgeting trend is that the more we talk, the more we learn, the more we share, the more we swap tools. And it will just generally make you um, a more financially minded person by even being more aware of what you're doing. And I really like that as as a financial educator. So it, right. it, that warms my heart. Yeah, because I think sometimes people are a bit leery of sort of like, you know, people will give you money advice, quote unquote, about investments. You know, I have this great investment. Oh, you, always yeah. get a, you always get a little a little jittery when people do that. But this isn't that, right? No, no. And I, I mean, like, it makes me jittery. Look at what's going on on TikTok and Instagram. And like, people who are totally unqualified are dishing out financial advice that they really should not be. But that's the way the world is going, right? And I think what we're talking about here is, is not that it is not about taking, let's just say, unqualified advice. Um, I'll, I'll put a pin in it there. Sure. I'll say, you know, it's not about taking unqualified advice. This is about just general um, awareness. It is about community building. It is about learning. And it is, hopefully, if you're going to do the loud budgeting thing, you're, you're there to also share, right? Like share what you're learning along your own journey. Um, so in this trend, you you did hit the nail on the head. Like there are a lot of, let's just say oversharers. That's what I was going to say. Can you overshare? Can you be too loud? Can you be too loud? Yeah. Like there are some extremely loud voices. And I, I mean, I've written about this in the past about like, it's, it's like the squeaky wheel gets the grease, the loudest voices, they get heard. And you need to be very careful. Like if you're going to do this and you are buying into I don't know, someone's narrative on a certain style of investing, be be the person that goes the next step and does a little bit of research, including like maybe a background check on the TikTok star who you're following and about to do a trade because they Jeez. said that that's a good idea, right? Yeah. Oh. right? And like, they probably don't even have professional liability insurance. To, to cover their butts. But, it's a wild um, world out there. I, it I, really you, you, is. You mentioned it too, that if you're if you're uncomfortable talking about finances or it's not something you've ever felt comfortable with, you, you, you recommended sort of starting maybe with your inner circle of people, people you trust, right? Maybe you've already Absolutely. had these conversations. Maybe you haven't, but it's easiest to do it with people whom you would already share with. Absolutely. Like a brother, a sister, a best friend, somebody that you can trust. I Certainly if you had like a mentor, that might be, this might be a perfect opportunity to bring them this new loud budgeting technique and you can practice. Um, it's not going to be perfect at first. You might overshare, you might undershare. They might have no idea what you're talking about. But I think the the goal is though to share what you feel comfortable with and stick to your guns. Here's what's on the table is that this year, if you have goals and you have social pressures to spend money on things that are not aligned to your goals, you're going to feel bad if you don't abide by your own goals, right? If you don't like work toward achieving your goals, you're going to feel like, hey, I didn't achieve this and disappointment at the end of the year. And you'll be angry at your friend too, unnecessarily, because you never told them. Correct. Like you may have feelings of actual resentment to your fancy friend who who has no idea that you are trying to achieve something important. And like, 
this is completely avoidable when you are able to be honest and transparent with them about what you are working on. So, you know, be free, my friends, share what you can. You're going to get stronger at it. You're going to get smarter with it and don't feel bad, right? Like there'll be a lot of comparisons. If you're in the lab budget community, there's again, those loud voices that are also going to feel a little boastful and like, you maybe want to compare yourself to where they are because they're a certain age or stage or they have a certain job level, you know, be mindful of those comparisons too. Because in my opinion, they are super unhelpful in this journey. (laughs) A personal dream. Leslie, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. You know, I've only been to Nunavut once. Uh, we landed in Iqaluit. I was on, I believe, an NDP campaign tour with John, with Jack Layton, with the late Jack Layton. And we landed in Iqaluit for a while and spent the, spent most of the day there and got to walk around a bit. And it really is an amazing place. I mean, it's so, the North is such an amazing part of this country. We, it's so expensive to get there. So few of us get a chance to see it obviously. But so it was heartening to see last week that there was this big announcement. Uh, Nearly 25 years after Nunavut became a territory in 1999, it signed a final agreement with the government of Canada to have the final say over a long list of decisions that were uh, usually made in Ottawa, at least until now. It's the largest land transfer in Canada's history, the Prime Minister said, 2 million square kilometers of land and water. And uh, this gives control over Nunavut's land and resources to the government of Nunavut. It's all known as devolution. Here's some of what was said at that signing announcement on Thursday. This is the next big step and the next chapter in the story of our beautiful territory. Today begins a new chapter in the history of Nunavut, a transformative chapter. The, both the Premier of uh, Nunavut and, of course, the Prime Minister the Prime Minister there. The agreement officially begins April the 1st. The parties will have until April 2027 to hammer out all the details. As I mentioned, it became a territory back in 1999. It has slowly been negotiating with Ottawa uh, to have the final say over how many decisions there are made. Uh, both Yukon and the Northwest Territories have already undergone that process. Um, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of things to be figured out as well. But the big piece here is that it gives Nunavut's government greater authority to collect royalties from development projects as well. So in other words, it allows it to build on its own. The government of Canada makes all the final decisions right now for the development of minerals, oil, and gas on Nunavut's public lands. Uh, We knew this was a big day. Uh, We thought we would uh, reach out to the Premier, PJ Akeogok, and ask him him what it meant uh, both to the people of Nunavut and to him personally. And uh, he joins me now. Premier, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks so much for having me here, Ben. It was interesting, you know. We were, I was just just a few weeks ago. We spoke with uh, with a woman named Lisa Laluk Watsko in Griesfjord about just living there and growing up there and the history of the community, how new it is. Um, you know, the displacement from northern Quebec to that community back in the fifties and so on. And I'd learned a bit about it, but that's 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 where you grew up as well. Yeah. Uh, yes. Very very honored to have grown up there. Uh, it's. Uh... Uh, the most northern community that really only has a the, the smallest population in the territory, but it uh, is one of the most special places in this world. And it has a history too that must live with you—a history of displacement, a history of being moved by the government there, being resettled there, and what that did to um, to the generations that had lived elsewhere before, and what it meant growing up there and trying to find your way. Um, in a new, not necessarily unfamiliar, but certainly not not a piece of land that that you'd called home, your families had called home for long. 
Yeah, and so it's not very many people know uh, that Inuit were actually relocated up for the flag I'm actually just looking at. So they use Inuit as as flagpoles for for Canada to make a claim for the Arctic. Uh, so it has a, a very dark history uh, when you look at it from from that viewpoint, where without really the consent and talking about the challenges that uh, Inuit would have faced uh, by being forcefully relocated, that uh, there was a, a dark time in our history. But I am, as a descendant, very proud of the resilience uh, Inuit have endured during that period and uh, for us to continue to play really a key role, uh, not only in the, in the territory, but in the country and around the world with the work that uh, many residents of Greasefjord uh, are doing now. How did that upbringing, growing up in Greasefjord, what was that like to think about that history when you sat across the table or sat at the table with the Prime Minister late last week and took this big step in Nunavut's history to making its own decisions, to being essentially... In, in many ways, as much as a territory can be, the master of your own domain. Yeah, it's everything. Uh, it's tied into who who I am. I uh, really got the strength from the uh, the people uh, I saw growing up, uh, starting with my parents, but also many of the elders who are no longer here. Uh, but there's so many that are up there that I uh, was very privileged to have uh, watched and learned from. But it really taught me as an individual that it requires a community to to help each other to ensure that uh, you survive and that you succeed. Uh, as the most northern community you could imagine, uh, there's really only two flights a week that come uh, to the community, one going in and one coming out. Uh, and, the, and the challenges that they face, but the, the resilience and the ability for uh, the people who call Greasefjord home uh, is really empowering. Uh, they've worked so well together to continue to help each other. And that has been how I've been shaped. So I've taken on this role with that viewpoint of it will require all of us to do our part and that it will require us to to work as a unit and as a team. So when I had the opportunity to, to discuss uh, with the prime minister, I, I had shared with him uh, a photo uh, of my family who's from up there and just uh, the strength uh, in the people there. So it really does uh, shape who I am and the work that we do. Uh, but the the major announcement we were able to do on the devolution agreement uh, is one I feel so honored and so proud to to be able to serve Nunavumut. Yeah. Uh, the ability for Nunavumut to start making that their own decisions uh, has been uh, the vision before even the land claims negotiations started. So it's been one I've uh, been very fortunate to play a really a small role, but to get to, to that finish line, something I feel very, very honored. Yeah, it's it's been an incredible quarter century. I mean, of course, I was around in 1999. I remember when Nunavut became uh, the third territory, and then here we are in 2024, and now there's devolution. What does it mean? What does this opportunity mean for, for you know for Southerners who might know, you know, who look up north and see one thing when you realize it's many different communities, even though they're far apart and and there are 40,000 people. It's not a huge population. But at the same time, this is a huge opportunity for, for you and, and, and everyone who, whose shoulders you stood on the other day when you signed that agreement. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, Nunavut is really uh, an incredible, very beautiful, very bright, vibrant 
uh, territory. We have uh, the youngest population in, in the country. Uh, when you see the, the dem- demographics across, we cover 25 communities spanning over uh, three different time zones. So the scale of the territories is, is massive. Uh, I felt uh, very privileged to to sign with the, the giants around me, the former premiers who have advocated for this for since 1999 and for most of them to have been present uh, there at the signing. I felt very, very honored to continue their, their vision and their push. And then to see uh, the Nunavut Agreement signatories, which created the public government that I serve as premier now, uh, to be around and to be surrounded by the elders around uh, when we were doing the the signing ceremony was yeah one I it's really hard to describe even in words. Yeah, you and my you and my wife were born one day apart, so I know you're young because <laughs> I always use that 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 term. But you were just I mean you were just a teenager when when Nunavut became a territory. So what an incredible change that has happened just in your lifetime. Where do you think? I mean, clearly we can talk a bit about the needs uh, after this, but the opportunities seem so vast. I mean, even talking about Grease Fjord, I know the weather's been changing. I mean, the climate's been changing up north quite fast. I mean, it feels like the 21st century is going to be. I mean, it's almost uncharted territory for the North right now, and you're sort of sitting at the very beginning of it uh, for your territory. Yeah, I feel very excited. Uh, There's so many opportunities before us. There are incredible uh, resources that have been untapped that Inuit have always had in their backyard. I'm looking at the the conservation economy we've worked on previously, where we saw uh, Inuit protect the largest area in the country, with uh, the work that we did on Imanga and Tuvayuito, uh, which is the Northwest Passage and uh, further north as well. Uh, that has really been the central part of our identity. So the, the huge advancements we've made around uh, the blue economy there. And then with the, the devolution agreement, I, I'm filled with so much uh, optimism with uh, what the possibilities are for the next generation uh, to really build the economies that we can uh, within our territory, the non-renewable resources that are here uh, right now, Nunavut has uh, four operating mines, uh, gold mines, uh, as well as an iron ore mine, and those are all on Inuit own land. So at this moment, there currently aren't any mines uh, on Crown land, but Nunavut uh, is, has really so much potential around uh, critical minerals and the incredible work uh, that uh, or the incredible opportunity uh, Nunavut can play in the fly as we're transitioning to the green economy, in particular the next three years to to really lay a strong foundation. So when we get to that space, we're ready and then we seize and take those opportunities that are going to be forthcoming in the next few years. Premier PJ Akiagok is with us, uh, of Nunavut, is with us this half hour talking about that big agreement. Well, we're talking about his upbringing in Grease Fjord, uh, the northernmost community in, in North America, really, uh, and also um, being at the table last week uh, as Nunavut was ushered into a new era, devolution, uh, signing over, getting many of the responsibilities, the final say over many things that were once lay with Ottawa will now lie with the people of Nunavut itself. Premier, when you look at some of the of the opportunities there, there's clearly going to have to be a balance between development and conservation. And I think uh, when one looks at how the Inuit have 
have been stewards of that land for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. That's that's a balance I think you understand well, but it will be challenging because there'll be a lot of opportunity and a lot of pressure to sort of say yes, I think. Uh, Inuit have always been the, the stewards of this land uh, for thousands of years, and we really always had that balance of ensuring uh, that we're we respect the nature, we respect the environment, we respect the wildlife around us. So what better people to to now take charge of our resources, of our environment, than, than those that call this place home uh, for many, many years. And it goes back to the forced relocation where Ottawa knew best to move Inuit right. uh, into communities, into the high Arctic. So when the devolution, uh, the concept was being... Uh, discuss what better people than the people that have called this uh, place home to be the ones who decide of their own future. So it's really a historic uh, moment for all of us who uh, will require a lot of hard decisions, uh, but I have full confidence of Nunavum making those tough decisions and finding that balance between uh, advancing uh, different economies or different industries uh, with that of conservation as well. So I think yeah, feeling very confident with with the devolution agreement, right? And you and you do have challenges, right? I mean, clearly there are challenges. I've been to Kelwit. I mean, you have all, you've always had challenges around housing, and you have a growing population, and that's been uh, so. There are things I, I suspect that even in the early days of devolution, you'd like to try to tackle in a way that maybe Ottawa hasn't tackled properly uh, for twenty five years, if not much much longer. Yes, we're celebrating uh, our 25th anniversary here as a public government. Uh, it really allows us to be able to have a, a reflection of uh, what we've done, what worked, what hasn't worked. And really, the, the one area I've, I, I, looking back where I believe uh, was a missed opportunity was that of investing in housing. Uh, we've seen the huge impact it's had on, on Nunavumut with the lack of housing and the investments when perhaps when the territory was being created. Uh, we've had uh, suicide crises. Mm-hmm. We've had uh, issues around the social determinants, the health determinants, uh, the education outcomes really tie into, into housing. So as a government, we've really tackled those in the last two years and have made incredible investments to actually put our equity into the issue. So we've uh, put 250 million in the, just in the last two years of our own resources to tackle the housing crisis. And 250 million to a Southern audience may not sound that big, but it's really an incredible amount. It's the largest ever investments we've made as a government. And we've been calling on Ottawa to, to match that. So we've actually done some incredible work that's very bold to really truly tackle the, at the root the housing crisis we've talked about for decades as as a last question for you then i guess I, if you look back to 1999 and i think a 14 or 15 year old you and then there's a 14 or 15 year old um you know young kid in greasefjord today or teenager in greasefjord today or in Calouit, and they look to the future you must see Maybe you see more opportunity for the 15-year-old today, despite the, the ongoing challenges. Uh, absolutely. Uh, a young PJ um, back in 1999 felt there's something big happening, but I wasn't quite sure uh, what that was. Uh, and then having learned about the land claims process and 
the incredible sacrifices he had endured, including my own community, of being forcefully relocated. Uh, but the continuation of, of that PJ going to school, going to university, uh, is one where I really see the next generation advancing that even further through that decision-making power that will now rest here in Nunavut uh, moving forward. Well, Premier, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on your program as well. We have no choice. If we don't win, I think our country is finished. I do. I believe our country is finished. There you have it. Donald Trump last night after winning the New Hampshire primary. But of course, Nikki Haley got quite a few votes. We talked about this last night. It wasn't a whitewash by any stretch of the imagination. Haley did pretty well amongst amongst independents and so on. So a lot of the coverage today was talking about how there were some alarm bells for Trump in that result because, you know, 45 percent of those who cast ballots, including independents in New Hampshire, which is a pretty good bellwether, um, didn't didn't vote for him. Right. They voted for his opponent. Now, Nikki Haley has a very, very steep mountain to climb. Uh, It's hard to see any path to victory for. But it was those words. It was the way he put that. If we don't win, I think our country is finished. And to me, in that short soundbite, it encapsulated so much about partisanship. Notice the use of the word we. We is very important in partisanship because it suggests you're part of something and he's part of it too. You're all part of one thing. And of course, the the, the hyperbole afterwards, we hear this a lot these days. The country is broken. Everything is destroyed. If the other country wins, if the other party wins, we're finished. Words like that. Now, let's be honest. These countries that we live in, these democracies, they're 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 not indestructible, but they're resilient. We saw that with the first Trump administration. They are relatively resilient. No one government destroys a country. It's not how it works, no matter how partisan you are. I remember when Harper was in power, I heard people telling me he's destroying the country. And I thought, no, he's not. And now we have Trudeau in power. Of course, you hear this this chorus of people whining about he's destroying the country. Well, no, he's not. You may not like his policies. You may not think we're headed in the right direction. And you can vote him out next time we go to the polls. That's how this works. But there are premiers, there are provinces, there are mayors, there are other people all over the country who govern. One person in Ottawa or one person in Washington does not destroy a country. That's now how, not how it works. But it's a reflection of the partisanship that exists, right? Because it stops being about policies. It's about my team and their team, right? My team and their team. And that's what it boils down to. We want to feel part of a group. We're, we're wired to want to be part of a group. And we want our team to win, you know, we're wired to want our team to win too. It's more important than any policy argument out there. We're not going to argue about tax cuts. Really? Is that really what this is about? It isn't at all. It's about my team who I identify with and whether my team, I like the guy or the, you know, the person I should say, who is leading my team and does my team win. It's especially true in the US, of course, with a two-party system where it's really, really is all or nothing. There are no consolation prizes in US politics. In Canada, of course, with a parliamentary system, there are different outcomes that can happen and so on. Um, but there's been some a real hardening of this in this century. And the social scientists, of course, have been watching this, um, doing a lot of stuff, doing a lot of research, publishing articles and books that add data to what appears to be this rise in tribalism. And one thing that emerges is that our politics tend to be more emotional now. I'm sure you see the the language is emotional. 
it's it, it is rarely about you know i really disagree i know i i don't agree with the way that the liberal government has pursued the immigration policy without knowing more about what impacts it could have it's like they're incompetent it's destroying the country well if that's your argument then there's no counter argument to that if you disagree right that, that's not an argument it's, a, it's it's sort of an emotional statement it's an outcry is what it is um and you know policy preferences are are entangled with this visceral dislike of the opposition um now it's tough if you stand in the middle where i normally stand right i mean that's that's where i stand right in the middle uh that's i mean obviously as a reporter you learn to be in the middle you learn to i mean truth be told if you work around politicians long enough even people you like as people it's hard to like any politicians. They all become, they all put on the shirt, they all put on the team shirt, and then they become politicians. Um, and and it, it, it's just hard. I mean, I've never really warmed. There, there, are, there are notable exceptions, but I find over time, I've never really, really warmed to politicians in general. And that comes from covering a lot of them. They'll say anything. I mean, at the end of the day, you're always convinced they'll say just about anything to get elected. So when I, when I watch any number of politicians these days, I'm thinking, you know, I know this game. You're just trying to get elected. You don't really care. You don't. You don't really care at all. You just want to get elected. It's a means to an end, right? So I thought I'd tackle this subject with someone who's done a lot of work on it. Lily Mason is a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University. She's the author of Uncivil Agreement: How Politics Became Our Identity, and co-author of Radical American Partisanship. And she joins me now. Uh, Lily, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it was um, it was interesting. I was watching Donald Trump last night. Um, give his acceptance. I always use that in quotes, his, his after vote speech. And he sort of said, if we don't win, I think our country is finished. If we don't win, I think our country is finished. And I thought, wow, that's exactly, that's your thesis essentially wrapped up in a little ball. Thanks to Donald Trump again. Yes. Right. The, and this has been something he's actually been saying since the very beginning, which is, you know, we're going to win. We're going to win so much. We're going to get tired of winning. Uh, and it and it really just it connects deeply. It, it, he probably doesn't understand exactly why, but it connects very deeply to what humans want to hear and what our what our kind of most our earliest motivations are. Um, and it really what it does is it reminds us that we are part of a group that is us and that there are other people that are them. And if we don't win over them, then chaos ensues right it's just it's the end of us there's nothing left that we can be proud of it strikes me as an awful way to do politics it's not maybe not an awful way to do politics it's an awful way to govern it's a terrible way to govern um it's a somewhat successful way to do politics in the sense that you get a lot of people paying attention and really mobilized and and wanting desperately to win um it does turn politics into into sort of this, you know, kind of sport type uh, event where we're just waiting to see who wins or loses on election night um, or election week, depending. But then once the once the victory has been given to us, that's sort of all we wanted. And um, and as long as we don't feel like losers going forward, then we're not asking a whole lot of our government in terms of helping us as individuals, in terms of improving our material well-being. Um, those things fall to the side because as long as we continue to feel like winners, uh, we, we're happy to forego other things. To me, it's always felt like a giant game of dodgeball where the most popular player on your team is the one who throws at the other team's head. I mean, that's what it's boiled down to me for now. And it's not that it's... I mean, I, I think it's it just becomes it, it feels so self defeating in terms of 
building a proper country or finding common ground on things because there's so many issues. I know this all goes goes without saying. When did this when did this begin? I mean, it feels like it's always been this way to some extent, but when did it become such blood sport, if I can use that word? Yeah. I mean, what's so so fascinating is that young people in the United States do not remember a time when our politics were not divisive and angry and hateful. Uh, it's They're shocked to hear that, for example, red states and blue states was a concept invented in 2000. It's not like an ancient, an ancient rule uh, written into our national DNA. And, and so the way that I think about it is to say that our parties have changed uh, within the parties, like the, the makeup, the social and cultural makeup of our parties have changed over the last few decades, um, really beginning in the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. But and that, but that, you know, generally after that, the people who were dis- the white Southern Democrats who were uh, angered by that legislation really took them gen- like over a generation to leave the Democratic Party, because they thought of the Republican Party as the aggressors in the Civil War. So they despised the idea of being Republicans. And so over a generation, they gradually became Republicans. And what that did was create in the Republican Party a very homogeneous base, where it's mainly kind of white, Christian. Currently, it's much more rural. Um, Whereas the Democratic Party ended up becoming this coalition of a lot of very different groups that had to work together, had to figure things out within the party, had to compromise within the party. And so the ultimately, the Republican Party ended up being capable of being much more purist than the Democratic Party. They could, you know, because they all agreed and they all sort of were similar in their identities, they could say, like, no, nobody is no one is breaking uh, our trust and no one is going to move away from what the party the most extreme ends of the party want um, that tr- that created the no- an opportunity for the for the Republican Party to be much more aggressive um, and and kind of unwielding. And you point out, and this is uh, I think we see evidence of this all the time now. That if you pick up, as you put it, if you pick up that banner of us versus them and winning versus losing, it works. It may not work for long, but it works. Yeah, right. It's. Um, this is this is coming out of research that's, you know, uh, thinking about the, the deepest roots of human psychology. When you just give people labels randomly and you ask them to allocate money uh, to other people in the experiment that they've never met before, they would rather rather than both groups getting like five dollars. They choose the option where their group gets four dollars, but the other group gets three. Okay. So this, this is an actual willingness to sacrifice your own material well-being in order to feel like you're better than the other guys. And and really, our you know political parties and political leaders are, are really dig, you know trying to tap into this a lot of the time. Donald Trump was actually explicitly doing this really really well. He does do it very well. I, I, th- I think it's funny because depending on what side of that equation you find yourself on, and then I'll, we'll talk about where all the rest of us who find ourselves standing in the middle thinking about all this are. But if you find yourselves on, on, on firmly on either side of this equation, you absolutely believe that only the other side is guilty of doing this. Oh, yes. I mean, the vast majority of people and even, you know, one thing that we know in political science is that our to the to to a large extent, our political policy preferences are not actually driving our our partisan choices. It's that our partisan choices 
have affected our political policy preferences. Our leaders have a huge amount of influence on what policies we prefer. Now, that's not true with certain like very deep identity based policies. But uh, the, the every single person that you ask will say, I think most of the other people in the country are like 95 percent of the people in the country um, make their decisions by their, you know, their their party influences their decision. They're not being rational. But I personally, I'm rational. And we have so everyone is saying that 95 percent of the country does this and nobody admits to doing it themselves. Right. It's we're all motivated to believe that we are rational, thoughtful, good people and we're not easily swayed by by bad information or by, you know, uh, by leaders that are telling us untruths. But it's but a lot of us really, truly are. I saw this fascinating uh, uh, chart that someone posted the other day about attitudes towards the shape of the economy in America based on your political preferences. And it's almost a diametric opposite. You see Democrats uh, really didn't think that the economy was in good shape under Donald Trump, although, and then vice versa under Joe Biden. And you realize that when it comes to something like the economy, you can always find a metric that proves your point, right? I mean, that's the whole point here. So, I mean, other than maybe the stock market, which Donald Trump predicted would collapse and set record highs this week in the US. Um, it's amazing that you're right. I mean, in that sense, you can Put that identity, that political identity, onto any metric that you want to choose, and somehow you'll find a way to make that argument work for you. Oh yeah, um, and, and even that there's there are, have been experiments done where um, the 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 position of the two parties on like a welfare policy has been randomly assigned. So some of the Democrats are getting like a really stingy welfare policy, and Republicans are getting a really generous one. And they also say, like, uh, no, this was definitely my choice. Like, they'll choose the policy that matches their party, no matter what it is. And then if we ask them later to take action, right, to, like, write an op-ed for the paper that they know their local representative reads to in order to convince them that this is the policy that they should do, people will write that op-ed. They'll come up with their own reasons, like, on the spot, within their own brain, as they're writing it, and truly, truly believe that they came up with it themselves, even when the position itself was just randomly assigned to them. Lily Mason is a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University, author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Uh, so, Lily, I was thinking about this reading, reading parts of your book last night. For those of us who don't really like either team or don't love either team, <laughs> you're sort of standing in the middle thinking, some of this makes sense, some of this makes sense. What happened? I mean, I suppose in some ways, those are now the people who decide elections to some extent. Uh, yes. they. Uh, so, first of all, um, the people who don't identify strongly with either side are are really kind of the most capable of seeing what policies they think makes the most sense. Um, one of the oldest one of the oldest books in the study of American political behavior was published in 1954. And they actually said the people who actually who are who not not just in the middle, but people who are not really paying a lot of attention to politics and have and are are persuadable. They're the only reason that our politics reacts to real events, right. because if it didn't, if they weren't there, then we would just have diehard partisans on both sides that never changed their mind ever. Um, and so the yeah, the, there are first, there are fewer and fewer people in the middle right now in the U.S. Um, but the but people who are willing to change their minds and don't feel strongly identified with a party, those two things go together really strongly. Um, if if you're if you're not very strongly connected, then you don't get influenced by the party as much. Um, those really are the people that can look around at our politics or that our nation's 
um, well-being and say, like, I don't think this one is doing very well. I think we should switch to the other one. Of course, uh, in America, it's tougher. Of course, in Canada, we have a parliamentary system, the UK as well, where you can sort of park your vote somewhere else quite easily, even if sometimes it feels like you're wasting it. But in America, it's really a zero-sum game often, isn't it? Well, that's the other thing, is in a two-party system, it all of these all of these dynamics are magnified because the if if we don't win then we lose there is no sense of you know in in a multi-party system or a parliamentary parliamentary system there are coalitions right there are ways of sharing power with other parties that might one time be your friend and another time be your enemy or be on the other side right and so if you have this dynamic of like sometimes we work together and sometimes we don't it's a lot harder to call those people them right because sometimes they're us and if they've ever been part of us then we are much more willing to be generous in our interpretations of their actions and their decisions and in the u.s there's just never been a time when the other party was us and as these as i talked about as these identities become more divided between parties so the parties become very different different from each other racially religiously culturally uh, it's harder and harder to even have met somebody from the other party. And so that influences our behavior as well. We don't think of them as us ever because we hardly ever spend any time with them and we've and we've often never met them. Do you see there, I mean, you brought up something interesting earlier and I hadn't thought of it that, you know, people voting today for the first time will have never known politics to be any different than it is to some extent now, this idea of red states and blue states and divisions and so on. But do you think there's a way to break this trance or is this trance going to break? I mean, as as you well know, not everything in politics, it always feels like it'll last forever and then it doesn't. Right. And and a lot of times, at least in the U.S. system, that requires either a massive external event um, like a war, although I would call COVID one of those and it didn't change anything. Um, <laughs> or just extreme electoral punishment for one side, right? If if a if a movement is 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 doing things that just seem extremely outside of what's normal, um, in in American history, they have been they have lost elections. And so if they are if they lose elections repeatedly and it becomes very clear that they simply don't have the votes to be a majority or to elect a president. Right. I mean, you don't need to be a majority to of the win country. the game right to win. That's uh, as it boils. Yeah. It's, the team's not winning. We got to fire the coach. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, and I think our, but you know, you don't need a majority of the of the country to take control of the Senate or the House, for example, right? right? Uh, and and so, like, the, I think you can elect a majority of the Senate with seventeen percent of Americans. So just because of the way that our states are populated, and every state gets the same number of Senate seats, um, and so the so it is though important for that's part of the reason why we have had this kind of fifty fifty dynamic over the last few decades in the U.S. between um, Democrats and Republicans winning winning national elections, uh, but but that does create a system in which electoral punishment is a lot harder to see. Right, it sort of becomes a self fulfilling a self fulfilling prophecy. The more partisan you get, the more partisan it becomes. Exactly, exactly. Well, <laughs> Lily, thanks so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.